If there's one issue that's caused a lot of controversy and intrigue in St. Louis over the past few months, it's the potential bid to have a private operator run Lambert Airport. In a recently released documentary by a person connected with the process's financial benefactor is raising alarm bells. Hard Landing at Lambert was released on YouTube recently, just as companies submitted requests for qualifications to potentially run Lambert. It was produced by Travis Brown, who has spent years as Rex Sinkfeld's go-to person for various political pursuits. Talks about the generational debt. Well, we've had a lot of questions about what's going on here, what problem are we looking to address with due respect to the improvements today in the last few years. We still have a generational debt decision. A lot of people feel strongly about that, and we give voice to those people. But many people involved in the privatization process are raising sharp questions about the documentary. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff joins Julie O'Donohue and I to talk about the privatization controversy. We also check in with St. Louis Public Radio digital reporter Kay Petrin about the latest in Paul McKee's struggles to redevelop parts of North St. Louis. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me today is... Julie O'Donohue. And our special temporary co-host, uh, St. Louis Public Radio's economic development reporter... Corinne Ruff. And Corinne is here to talk in the first segment about, quote-unquote, airport privatization, which is the terminology that we use to talk about this process about possibly bringing in a private operator to run St. Louis Lambert Airport. Did I get that correct, first of all? Correct. Yeah, basically, it's the city saying whether or not it's a good idea. So you've been knee-deep in this subject. I know you're super busy because so much is happening, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on this show. Right now, the the process has shifted to the, what's known as a RFQ. Yeah, so it's called a request for qualifications. People are probably more familiar with an RFP, which is the request for proposal. So think about this as just the step right before that. The city's basically saying, are you even qualified? Does your expertise match up with what we're looking for? Who are some of the entities that have applied or responded to this RFQ? Yeah, so we, we got the whole list of all of the companies that are interested in responding to this. And then I've spent the last couple of days just knee-deep researching who are these companies. Um, and it's been really interesting. Actually, the majority of the companies or groups, sometimes it's a consortium of several companies, are international. Um, so it's interesting to look at who they are. There's 18 of them. They range widely. There's several Canadian pension funds. There's also international airport operators, private equity, real estate groups, um, and some who actually manage specific airports. So, you know, there's a lot of different players from Europe, Australia, Latin America. Do we know are any local sort of high profile people connected to any of these companies? I'm thinking about the former mayor of St. Louis. 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. And that came up when I did some reporting out in Denver because former Mayor Francis Slay was a registered lobbyist with a company called Ferrovial Airports. They were leading a private, a partial privatization operation in Denver, which fell apart uh, a, a month or so ago, um, you know, that company ultimately didn't put in a bid. So that was the big surprise. Um, and Slay deregistered his lobbyist on Friday. He got in touch with me and said that he doesn't plan on registering with any other groups, but he thinks it's a good idea for St. Louis. Should be noted to our listeners that when he was still mayor, Francis Slay started this privatization process and is now financially benefiting from it. Yep, absolutely. Now, let's move on to the other thing that is touching off a lot of controversy, and that's a new documentary. I think it's called Hard Landing. Um, and there's Hard a, Landing at Lambert. Hard Landing. Believe it or not, people, I actually watched this entire documentary on time when I should have been taking time off before the 99th District House <laughs> race. By the way, Trish Gunby won that. We talked about that last week at Nauseam. That's my uh, way of shoehorning that in. Um, it, it, before I provide my, my thoughts on it, it how is this causing controversy throughout the whole process? Because I know a lot of people are, are talking about this documentary and, and not in not so glowing terms. Yeah, definitely. So this has come up at the last few airport advisory working group meetings. So that is the city's group that's considering this whole process. And it's led by some city officials, including the budget director, Paul Payne. And he has been upset, to say the least, about this um this new quote-unquote documentary, and that's for a couple of reasons. The first is that they just weren't given a heads up at all that it was coming, and because of that, they're saying that there are a lot of factual inaccuracies. No one that was in the making of this film reached out to the airport director or anyone involved with current dealings at the airport to check any kind of facts, even though they claim it's a historical look at the airport. But I think the biggest reason why they're upset is the dual role of Travis Brown. So Travis Brown is the executive producer of this new quote-unquote documentary. He's also the lead consultant of Fly 314, which is the you know conglomeration of consultants that are leading the privatization process. So they're saying, hey, you know, first and foremost, your duty is to report to this city working group, not to be producing a film for some entity that you own. Another thing came up this week related to the airport. The St. Louis County Council passed a resolution in which they expressed a lot of, um, I think it's safe to say, displeasure uh, with the way the privatization process is, is working. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, Corinne, and how that fits into all the rest of this? Yeah, so I wasn't at that particular meeting, but I do know this sort of opens up the question to regional governance, which has come into play over the last couple of weeks. We know that St. Charles County Executive Steve Elman has raised this question of, hey, everyone's just talking about privatization and how great this could be for St. Louis, but you know what? It's a regional asset. There's people in St. Charles County and St. Louis County and even farther that benefit from using the airport, and why aren't we talking about how everyone together could benefit from it and maybe it shouldn't be privatization, maybe it should be all of us coming into play. Now, that's been contentious, too, with um, notably Marlene Davis, who is on this city working group, and she's also the head of the Transportation Committee. Um, she said, you know what, if you're, if you're not going to write a check, uh, you can just sit down and shut up. Well, I think there's some irony in the, the, the documentary and, and what Julie just talked about, because the documentary talks a lot about how Bridgeton residents had no voice in the expansion of the runway that ended up taking a lot of homes in that town. It also kind of infers that government officials like screwed up the process and are, are trying to cast doubt over whether it should be controlled by government, which I think implicitly 
makes the idea of privatization sound like a good idea, even though it's not explicitly said. But is there any irony that that documentary focused on how St. Louis County residents didn't have any say over the matter, yet the same people that are producing this documentary are running a process that could have a private operator come in with no real say-so from the counties surrounding Lambert? I, I think it does. I mean, I think it's just sort of trying to use the citizens of Bridgeton to prove a point. Um, you know, that's not clear. Brown hasn't said that. But they're also not proposing, you know, any kind of reparations or anything for the people that were displaced in Bridgeton. Um, they're not talking about, you know, having them involved. And we've already seen all of the mayors around the airport have recently sent a, layer, a letter to St. Louis Mayor Lida Krusen asking for a briefing, asking to be involved in this process. But, you know, we haven't, you know, the documentary doesn't talk about anything up to date now. Well, thanks, Corinne, for this update. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So, Julie, you were in Jefferson City this week and you were at a hearing about sports betting, an issue that I think a lot of state legislatures are, are dealing with right now. Yes. Explain what you heard at this committee hearing and what's at stake. So this is the final uh, meeting of the Interim Committee on Gambling in the Missouri House. Um, and this is their second meeting where they've really dealt with sports betting. I guess I would say legalizing sports betting seems to be a simple proposition, but there's a lot of moving parts. You have to consider what you might want the tax rate to be. You have to consider whether you want licensing fees. You have to consider whether you want betting on just professional sports. Do we want betting on collegiate sports, minor league sports? I would say even there's probably got to be some language to prohibit betting on high school sports, so that can't happen. You have to consider whether you want in-play betting, so betting on particular plays in the game, as opposed to, I think, most people, myself included, who don't participate in sports betting already don't really understand that there's in-play betting in addition to betting on the outcome of a game or a season. Um, so so there's a lot of moving parts uh, in that respect. And then, you know, whenever a new revenue stream seems to crop up, there are people who want a piece of the pie. And mostly what happened yesterday was it became very clear that the professional sports leagues, particularly in this case at the hearing, there was a lobbyist from Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the PGA Tour, so professional golfers, uh, want some, I guess you could call it a kickback uh, if sports betting is legalized. They want, um, they are asking for royalties. Uh, which, frankly, they seem unlikely to get because the lawmakers, and these are the the lawmakers on this committee tend to be very pro-gambling, uh, didn't seem to be interested in that. But one, one thing that they might get is that the leagues want to require the people who run sports books to use data provided by the leagues, which they would have to buy from the leagues. And it seems like a lot of states who have professional sports teams have considered have decided to do that. So, for example, Illinois and Tennessee both require sports books to buy data that they use to develop the sports book from the leagues. And explain what that means. You know, I honestly, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what that means. But I think it's the data that you would use to develop the odds and such would okay. come from the league, um, and and like the in play data would come from the league. 
Um, and the leagues say that that's needed so that there can be some quality control so that you're using, you know, the appropriate data and odds. I would say it also provides them with a revenue source. I suspect that Iowa actually doesn't require this uh, of their sports betting because they were not mentioned in this hearing, although they are nearby as having one of these rules. Um, and then also an interesting thing was to uh, a NFL Players Association rep and a NHL Players Association rep uh, came to speak at the hearing too about um, some things that they feel like athletes will need to be protected from if this comes online, including like some new rules about what an athlete should do if someone approaches them about um, throwing a game or uh, playing a particular way, and also if someone threatens them. That was going to be my next question. I think the reason that sports betting hasn't been widely legalized before now is that exact fear that there's going to be commingling between gambling interests and players to effectively rig games for various people's benefit. That could be the difference between sports betting being a true game of chance and it being a complete ripoff for people. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of conversation about that. Uh, Pete Rose was brought up a couple different times. Um, the Black Sox scandal was brought up a couple different times. That's when you know you have a lot of St. Lewis people involved when you're talking about baseball scandals from 100 years ago. Not that that's not well known, but um, <laughs> that, in, that involved the White Sox. Um, so I, that came up a couple times. A lot of people seem to think, oh, an, an NBA referee scandal that happened much more recently came up too. Uh, that came up a couple times. There didn't seem to be any proposals or solutions to that, but certainly the Players Association seems to be worried about that. One thing that they did put out there was that I guess some states are considering taking some of the revenue produced from sports betting and putting it into some professional athlete fund that's supposed to support professional athletes after they retire in an effort to sort of uh, take some incentive incentives away from someone to like throw a game and make money off of the game that way. I'm not sure I, I buy that connection, but that was thrown out there as an idea. Well, where were some other ideas of where the revenue from this could go? I mean, the obvious place is education, because when gambling was legalized many years ago in Missouri, Missouri voters did it because they were promised more money for education. But I also imagine there's other interests that want that money. Yeah, right. I mean, so beyond the professional sports league saying that they wanted some of the money, quite frankly, um, that wasn't discussed. I think what did come up is there's not a whole lot of clarity, at least for me, about how much money is going to come in from sports betting. We should say that states who have um, approved it for mobile devices, so on your phone you can place a bet as opposed to just putting in casinos, are making a lot more money, and that's a pretty big factor in how much might come in. Thus far, I've only seen industry people kind of suggest how much money they think Missouri could produce. And um, I'm a little skeptical of what they were saying because, for example, one person said yesterday that Missouri would be analogous to New Jersey. And I just don't think New Jersey, by the way, guys, is next to the largest city in the country. New Jersey also has Atlantic City, which is like a gambling hub. So I just was a little skeptical of that. I think that before there's a discussion about where the money should go, I think, I and I'm sure there are lots of discussions about that, 
uh, there probably needs to be a, a more definitive answer about how much money is, a, is available. Well, thank you, Julie. We'll be right back right after this message with St. Louis Public Radio digital reporter Kay Petron. And we're back on Politically Speaking, and we have an, yet another St. Louis Public Radio staffer on our show, Kay Petron, a digital reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. And we're going to be talking about Paul McKee and the continuing controversy surrounding the developer who sought to redevelop parts of North St. Louis. Before we talk about the news peg of this, Kay, can you just explain kind of generally how you've been covering this story? So I started digging into what was going on with Northside Regeneration and Paul McKee about two years ago. Uh, And we've been sort of looking at his existing projects and what the status of them is. Um, So we looked at his buildings he promised to rehab. Um, We dug into whether or not he had actually rehabbed them. If so, how many? We found that only one had been successfully rehabbed out of more than 150 that he had listed for rehab in various documents. Um, We've also been following the urgent care, which is one of the big projects that he sort of points to to claim, look, like we're making progress. Um, But the urgent care has faced various delays and has had some construction issues with... um, work that was done collapsing it lost its permits building permits from the city um the permits have now been reinstated and they say they've got everything underway but we've been sort of following uh the status on that project as well now the news peg that's come up pretty recently is the st louis post dispatch reported on how attorney general eric schmidt handled a case involving tax credits and and i guess the accusations of tax credit fraud with Paul McKee. Julie, if you want to explain the story uh, as succinctly or as verbosely as you can, <laughs> now is the, now is your chance. Yeah, so Jack Suntrup and Jacob Barker, who are two reporters for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, ran a story over the weekend regarding uh, the money that um, McKee, his lawyer, their family members and businesses associated with both of them have given to Attorney General Eric Schmidt Apparently, over the last 11 years, they've given Eric Schmidt in his various campaigns um, about $150,000 in fairness. And the article mentions this. The attorney general has raised a lot of money in that time. He's yeah. raised about $7 million. I, I was just going to interject. $150,000 over an 11-year period of somebody who's raised 7 or $8 million is frankly not that much. But, Correct. And they point yeah. that out in the article. They do point that out in the article. They also detail... Um, Attorney General Schmidt, when he was in the legislature, carried or in the General Assembly, carried a lot of legislation that benefited uh, McKee. uh, And a lot of the money was given to the attorney general when he was carrying that legislation. So the money hasn't necessarily been given to him while he's been attorney general. A lot of it precedes that. Um, But I guess this was tied to a settlement that attorney general, the attorney general struck I guess, with McKee that I think was somewhere around $300,000 that the Post-Dispatch noted was a lot less than what Attorney General Josh Hawley was initially seeking from McKee, which was more like $2.6 million um, over the inappropriate use of tax credits. Okay. Have you been following this court case that really called into question the use of state incentives that McKee used to kind of patch together this big Northside footprint? What is the big takeaway from that that lawsuit from your reporting? Yeah, I've been keeping an eye on it. I have not specifically reported on that. Um, but what we're sort of seeing is that this tax credit program 
was created and McKee was the major beneficiary of it. And now there's sort of all these questions. Well, did he even purchase all these buildings? Is he even doing the work that he sort of promised he was doing? And so there's sort of this question of did he really deserve this huge tax break that he got from the state or tax credits rather? I, I think that this both this story and the things that you've been reporting on brings up a larger question about the entire McKee enterprise. It's been, what, 11, 12, 13 years since Northside Regeneration kind of burst into the St. Louis scene. And if you drive around the footprint, with the exception of the NGA, which is in the footprint, if I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, there just is not anything to show for it. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that there were lawsuits over this, and there are financial issues that came about. But I think that the big question that a lot of people in St. Louis have is what has been kind of the payoff to all of this state and local incentives for this project? And so far, there have been a handful of projects completed. So there was a gas station um, supermarket. And so there's there's a little bit of progress that's been made there. But that is much less than was sort of promised. McKee has said that his project was a big draw for the NGA. Uh, there's really no way to know whether or not that's really the case. So what do you think has been the main differences between how former Mayor Francis Slay has approached the McKee project and current Mayor Lyda Krusen has approached the project? Former Mayor Slay was a big proponent of the project and sort of helped it get approved and get through all the legal hoops that it needed to get through. Um, Mayor Krusen has taken a very different approach, uh, has started billing McKee for uh, for water sewer things that he had not paid, uh, broke, uh, has sort of said he, you know, he hasn't abided by his legal agreements. And so we're not going to be beholden to the promises we made him. Um, but on the flip side, the St. Louis Development Corporation uh, has sort of continued to work with him and continued to push uh, some of these deals and, and renewed uh, agreements that they had previously made with him. So it's not a, a 100 percent clean break where we've gone from, you know, one mayor who's gung ho and another mayor who is saying, no, no, nothing to do with him. There's there's some there's still some ties there and they're still working with him in some ways. I don't I, I since I'm new, maybe this is a pretty basic question. But one of the things I don't understand about all of this is whether he feels any pressure to be doing more than he's doing now. Like there's certainly a lot of scrutiny of him for for good reasons from from UK and from, you know, other reporters clearly. Like does he feel any pressure to be doing something any differently than he's been doing things uh, a, up to this point, I guess? That's a great question. It, it's um, been fairly difficult to get a hold of him personally in the last few years. Uh, but when I have spoken with him, what he sort of said is, you know, I'm I'm working on this. I've put a lot into this and I'm I've we have results with the and he refers to sort of the gas station and grocery store and getting this state certificate of need um, from the from Missouri for the urgent care. So he sort of says, look, we're doing things. We're abiding by agreements. And it, it was all, you know, this 
legal trouble that held us up. And so I don't I don't necessarily get the sense that he you know, he's never said, oh, yes, the city's right. We're very sorry. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. He sort of maintained that he's he's upholding his side of the deal. I've always gotten the sense, too, that the residents in the McKee footprint have been have varied from being helpful to extremely hostile and distrustful um, with again we're we're over a decade after this project was announced how are you, what sense are you getting of the actual people living there feeling about this project a lot of people who live in the footprint do not specifically know that he's the one who owns you know the six properties on their block that are just sitting there um and you talk to people and they're sort of like, you know, I really wish the city would do something about this, but they don't they don't necessarily know that, you know, there's something supposed to be happening with them at this point. The people who do know that McKee had made these promises um, are very frustrated. You talk to them and they say, you know, that they've had all sorts of issues with the properties and their maintenance and they really just want them demolished. Um, but uh, it's sort of reached the point where to a lot of people living on the block, he's just another, you know, absentee landowner. Um, is there any general lesson that you think people should take away from this? Or is this story still ongoing to where the final chapter has not been written? The final chapter has definitely not been written. But I think the thing that has become really apparent to me is that uh, as I've been talking to people on this story, a lot of people just didn't really pay close attention to what they were agreeing to when they were sort of writing and signing off on these agreements. So a lot of the people in sort of city government who were involved now are sort of like, I don't know. I don't know about that. And there's a there's sort of a sense that maybe people weren't paying as close of attention uh, when they were making the decisions as they should have been. Okay, thank you for coming in the studio and talking about this important story. And be sure to read all of Kay's coverage on sclpublicradio.org. We'll be right back after this break. And we're back with our final segment that we'd like to colloquially call Show Me Something. As I blurted out randomly in the first segment, <laughs> uh, Trish Gumby ended up winning her race in the 99th House District over Republican Leanne Pittman. It's been seen as kind of a watershed moment for Democrats in western St. Louis County because that part of St. Louis County has been very, very Republican for a long time. And I got to be at Gunby's victory party. It turned out to be a victory party, not an election watch party. And she had a little bit of this to say about how she won. People are just tired of the negativity and they are looking for more civil times. And I think that my message uh, provided that. So, Julie, I think we could probably like wax and wane about the impact of this race for a long time. But we talked about that on the last show. So I want to use this as a jumping off point to ask you, what is your favorite documentary about elections? <laughs> I right. know it's kind of a random jump off point, <laughs> but we're going to use Gunby to to pigeonhole ourselves. No, this. I've been thinking about elections all week uh, because we covered one. And there was a lot of news about elections, I think, this week. So I've got um, a couple. Uh, I think like the most famous sort of like campaign documentary is probably The War Room which is about Clinton, Bill Clinton's first campaign. It is the documentary that made James Carville in particular very famous because he is like the colorful character at the center of it, you know, beyond Bill Clinton himself. Um, and that's worth watching. 
I am very partial to a documentary that admittedly I have not seen in several years. And now this person's running for president. So I'm 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 recommending it, but I'm trying to tell you all you should divorce yourselves of your current feelings for him. But there is a documentary about Cory Booker running for mayor of Newark when he is very young. Street fight. Street fight from 2005. Um, and and actually, I, I don't think this spoils the documentary, but it's a documentary about him running for mayor of Newark where he loses to a machine candidate. And if you are someone who likes, like, city politics, machine politics type stories, it's it's really good on that front. Of course, he went on to be mayor of Newark and is now a U.S. senator running for president. But this is about his initial sort of outsider insurgency campaign. It's kind of like the Little Big League of documentaries. Do you, have you ever seen Little Big League? Yeah. <laughs> Where they actually lose at the end because Ken Griffey Jr. like robs. Uh, a similar as that is Mr. Smith. Can Mr. Smith go to Washington anymore? Starring former state Senator Jeff Smith. That actually covered his unsuccessful bid for Congress. In oh, my Missouri. gosh. I have to see that. It's quite good. And it's kind of a, a capsule in time to the 2004 election cycle. Another documentary that I personally like that you can only find on YouTube is a documentary that was created by my former Columbia Daily Tribune co-worker, Seth Ashley. It's called like Election 2004. It's this kind of avant-garde look at the 2004 election through the lens of people in Columbia, Missouri. Back oh, when interesting. Mis- back when Missouri was still a competitive presidential state. And Columbia, Missouri has its own weird idiosyncrasies, as I mentioned before. So I highly recommend you just type in Seth Ashley election. You should find it on YouTube. Yeah. And again, guys, if you haven't seen The War Room, that's sort of like the, the I guess, the the most well-known of this genre. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you to both Corinne and Kay for joining us on this episode of Politically Speaking. Our executive editor is Shula Newman. Our editor is Fred Ehrlich. And our sound engineer is John Larson. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Julie on Twitter at... J.S. O'Donohue. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down